Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a great place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com weekend to get 20% off your first order. Hello, everyone. It is December. It's December 11th, actually. That's when we're recording this. And I'm Danielle, and this is Idle Weekend. And we're doing another sort of quick, quick and dirty mailbag episode, because as as is always the case in December, everybody's schedule is bananas. I'm actually in Rhode Island for a memorial service. A lot of people have died this month. It's very unfortunate. It's a little sad. But uh, here we are. We're going to give you an episode. We're going to talk to the mailbag. You know, sort of like talking to you if you wrote in the letter. But we're always, you know, we're always talking. It's a podcast. Podcasts. It's where we talk. Uh, Rob, we'll be back for the next episode. Don't worry. R&D will be back in action very, very soon. Uh, So, yeah. Don't worry about that. And now, without further ado, we're going to dip right into the mailbag. Our first email comes from Patrick. Patrick writes, Hi, Rob and Danielle. Hope all is well. So lately, probably due to not having a lot of time to play games recently, I've bounced off pretty hard on a couple of games I was looking forward to. Deus Ex, Mankind Divided, and Dishonored 2. Because I didn't have a ton of patience for dying a whole lot and retrying. Then I wondered to myself why I had basically no patience for failure in these games, but when it came to real-life things, I had far more ability to deal with failure, even when it took longer, and even when it wasn't technically necessary. For example, due to needing to bring desserts uh, to the in-laws for Christmas, I've been learning how to make pie crust from scratch. Understand that this is a somewhat finicky and time-sensitive process, and I've had several failures. And yet, I pressed on, and despite these failures, I've still gotten a lot out of the process. What I realized as I contemplated this as part of what I think makes these failures easier to deal with is that there are many waypoints in the continuum of success in terms of making pie crust. For example, my first attempt barely rolled out at all, but I put it in a pie pan, cooked it, and it still tasted good, so I spread jelly on it and ate it that way. So yes, technically a failure, but still tasty. And on my last attempt, my top crust fell apart, but I just sprinkled it over the top. To me, it seemed that part of my trouble is that the granularity of success in this particular pursuit, as well as in many other areas of life, are something that's often missing in games. I understand that games can never truly be this granular, but it would be nice if there were a larger range of possibilities between success and failure. Can you think of games that have a lot of possibilities like this, and can you think of how this kind of range of possibilities might work in games? Happy Holidays, Patrick. Well, this is something I butt my head up against uh, pretty often as well, Patrick. Um, I have a lot more patience in general for things in real life because the the things you get out of it, the benefits of doing things in real life, even if you're failing, seem pretty tangible a lot of the time. Like, I, I always use this sort of boxing metaphor. Even if I have a bad day, and I'm not even currently boxing at the moment due to a wrist injury, but yeah, I'm going back to jujitsu soon, so it's still relevant in my life. But yeah, if, even if I have a bad day in the gym... I did something. 
you know, I, I got some kind of gain from it. I learned something that's applicable in my life, in, in this sport that I do, that I get so much out of. It makes me happy. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm learning a skill. It feels like something that could be useful if I was ever in sort of a dangerous situation in my life. So it's like, yeah, something good came out of that. Whereas if I play a game and I suck and I do poorly, I'm like, well, that sucked. And that was hours of my life. I'll never get back. So I, I've always had that sort of feeling <laughs> that I just have more patience for real life stuff. Uh, and, and I realize that's, that's not even the best way to look at things sometimes because you can, you can certainly apply lessons you, you learn in, in games to life in a lot of ways. You know, people talk about this quite a bit. This was definitely a big part of my frustration with The Witness that I felt like I was spending hours and hours learning something that was useless outside of The Witness. And, you know, people sort of rightly pointed out, well, the process of learning is a valuable process. Your brain is making connections in certain ways that it's useful for other things in life. So, you know, I kind of learned to appreciate that a little bit. But I think that's part of what might be happening here for you. But obviously also, fail states and win states are are pretty binary in games. You know, you're obviously getting at this as well. And, you know, I feel like maybe Dishonored does this a little bit differently because it's sort of rating you on on a graph of like, you know, it's not just failure and success, but it's like lethal versus non-lethal, assault versus, uh, you know, uh, stealth. And it's, you're on a, there, there's a full grid, you know, you could be plotted anywhere on, on the X and the Y axis uh, for this. So I feel like there's a little bit more granularity there for sure, but you can still certainly fail a mission and that's, you know, a binary. Um, I keep thinking about walking simulators and like very story-based games and adventure games in terms of this where it's like you don't really fail ever i i really like games that kind of don't have a full fail state i guess the fail state of something like a walking simulator is you didn't get it you didn't get the story the win state if you want to put it in a very sort of simple terms is you got the story you understood the story you found the story bits and your brain made connections and you understood it i mean that genre is appealing to me for a lot of reasons of course but yeah, there's certainly ways games can do this. You know, I also am thinking back to to platformers that have done this in a sort of inter- interesting and entertaining way, like the Wario games, not WarioWare games, the Wario games on Game Boy that you never died. You just sort of took a different form uh, when an enemy attacked you, and that allowed you to sort of solve puzzles. I always loved that. I always thought that was a great design, um, you know, paradigm like that's completely interesting and different and you're not failing you're just kind of doing something different see I do I agree I I do want games to explore kind of different different ways out of that binary non-binary yeah things don't always need to be binary man you know screw binaries I mean you know sometimes you're binary it's fine all right the next email comes from Kevin Kevin writes hey Danielle and Rob I have a question the topic of the genre life cycle has come up on Idle Weekend in a few different discussions, most recently in discussions of Dishonored 2, and I was first exposed to the intricacies of the growth and decay of genres from the designer Daniel Cook on another Idle Thumbs podcast. Daniel argues that consumer demand pushes developers to discover novel ideas, but once consumers find something they like, the developer will need to keep complicating the game design in order to keep players interested in a game. There have been several times in video game history where creativity exploded because consumer demand outpaced the supply and developers had to get snappy with the new ideas. Your disrepair 
uh, excuse me, your despair over all the awesome games that are being ignored right now makes me feel like we might be experiencing an overabundance of supply where developers are not responding to decreasing market demand for new games. We'll totally suck if studios start cutting staff again, but what genres and ideas would you like to see extended into the future? Oh, I love this question, Kevin. Um, God, I just want developers to keep innovating and I want them to keep finding new ways of making things fresh and exciting. And I really want that the sort of diversity and the sort of diversity of viewpoints that we saw in big games this year, at least in terms of, you know, interesting characters. Watch Dogs 2 apparently did some really cool things with characters, especially people of color, people on the autism spectrum, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Mafia 3, of course, which which made mechanical, I think the most interesting thing about that game, and I've talked about this before, but one of the most interesting things about that game is how it made racism basically a mechanic in the game. When you, you know, when you're in a, an affluent neighborhood, the cops will pay attention to you more, things like that. That's fascinating and cool. And what an interesting way of approaching such a really, really complicated and really wrought topic. That's great. I just want developers to keep taking risks like this. And it kills me to see, uh, to think of, of these games not being successful because they took risks. I don't, I don't, you know, personally, I don't know as much about the business side. I, I know the things I know as a person who lives in a capitalist society in America in 2016, of course. Uh, but I, I understand the, the supply and demand aspect of this. I understand, you know, consumers want what they want. I, I get all that. But man, it just makes me sad. As, as somebody who's enthusiastic about games, as somebody who gets really excited, of course, about interesting new games and interesting new takes on games, you know, this this sounds like a shallow thing to say. Um, so I'll, I'll dig a little bit deeper. I'll go, I'll go one level below here. Is it... Is it because things are new and different and weird? Is it because there's there's a comfort aspect of, of what people already know and like? Is it because people are, are tired and they work too hard and they just want the comfort food? Is that what's going on? And is it because I am a game journalist and I play, I get, I'm very privileged and I'm lucky and I get to play everything and so I want the new things? I don't know. I, there's, there's a lot of reasons why we want the things that we want, right? Um, but you know, I'm going to continue wanting things to push forward. And I'm also going to continue enjoying the sort of comfort food games. And I will always enjoy the games that twist new things with older things. Uh, very, very much so. And I think Mafia 3 actually does that pretty well, even though it's it's a bit overlong. So there's your answer. And I, I think you're right, Kevin. All right. Our last email comes from Will from Chicago. We, we read a lot of Will from Chicago letters because you know what, Will? You read, you, you send us some really good letters, and I really appreciate that. Hi, DNR. I want to thank you both for discussing my past questions on air. Each time you do, it's a really special part of my week, and I'll keep it light with this one. I've tried my damnedest to engage with Paradox's games after years of hearing Zach and Austin Walker talk about them. In theory, they should be right up my alley. Number crunchy, tactical, and decision heavy. They just never take, no matter how many hours I dump into them. My mind just doesn't seem to like them. By the opposite token, my favorite game of 2015, Invisible Ink, fits my brain like a glove. While they're radically different, Invisible and Paradox's library, they come from roughly the same phylum in the taxonomy of games. This got me thinking, what part of me is unable to digest Paradox games, but so able to grok games like Invisible Ink? 
I realize it's the same part of me that is an abstract painter rather than a landscape painter. The same part that writes short stories and not books. Same part that enjoys cigarettes despite the health hazard. Came to realize, man, my mind just doesn't see the big picture. And when it does, doesn't really care too much to analyze it. I just like the thrill in making decisions in the immediate. I could have told you, I could have told you that about myself before making this connection, but this instance helps me to, to <clears throat> excuse me, this instance helped me to crystallize that sentiment. So, have you had any gaming experiences that have taught you more about you? If not, what are some games that could act as a means of explaining your personality? Love, Will from Chicago. And Will also notes, P.S., I finally broke through the first hour of Undertale today, which I've tried many times to do. Finally understand that the love is real. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, games that act as a means of explaining my personality or taught me more about me. I've talked about it a little bit, but uh, Psychonauts is definitely, it's kind of like my go-to favorite game. You know, I, I have a lot of favorites, but it's its one of my absolute go-to favorite games. I think because of its, it's sort of dark and weird and funny in the way that something like Farscape is dark and weird and funny, but also very, very warm. No matter how dark things ever got, no matter how goofy things ever got, it was always about warmth and sort of personal connections between characters and people who love each other, even though they're really flawed and kind of messed up. You know, this is a game about exploring people's brains and their minds and the weird warped psychology of that in such an abstract and artful way. And so I, I, I've always had such an affinity for that. And it's something that I like to, I would point to that as something that explains my personality. Like, I like to dig at things. I like to explore things. I like to explore people. I like to explore their minds. That is me. That is something I like. I also just generally like goofy humor with some darkness to it, with some depth, with some weight to it. Uh, that's <laughs> weird tonal shifts. And, you know, obviously you think, maybe you think of Psychonauts as being, like, really goofy on, on its top, but, like, there were always those sort of secret hidden memories inside people's minds that were really dark, and, and they really kind of hit me where I live. Uh, so I think, you know, I played that game at such a, a weird and interesting time as my brain was literally adjusting to a, a medication for anxiety and depression. Like, my brain was, I could, like, feel I was, my dreams were becoming more vivid, and I could feel, like, myself changing as I was playing it. So it, it will always have that connection that I feel like does explain <laughs> me in certain ways um, and taught me a little more about me in certain ways, for sure. And there's also... You know, uh, games that would a means of exploring your personality. I, I feel like there's a lot to, to sort of my favorite games, and there's a lot of reasons why they're my favorite games. And I, I won't talk about Donkey Kong Country, because you already know. You already know. It's fine. You already know. Not to say that I'm, you know, I'm, in, I'm a monkey. I'm not. I mean, you probably figured that out by now. But, you know. I think the things that drive us to certain games will always tell you a little bit about yourself. Like the, the elements that really grab you, that really get to you, just like you're saying, Will, with, uh, you know, with Invisible Ink. Like there's reasons why you are so drawn to things. There's reasons why you're so passionate about things. And that will always tell you a bit about yourself. Uh, and that's, that's part of the reason why passion is so interesting and so much fun for somebody who's you know, really interested in people's psychology and the things that make them tick, like me, I'm always going to want to know, uh, you know, what somebody really loves and also what they really hate, because that tells you just as much, too. A game that you really hate, like, oh my god, you hate it, um, <laughs> will tell you so much about yourself, too. Uh, so I'm always, oh god, I'm always so interested in that, and I, I might 
I might pose this question to Rob in the next uh, in the next episode as well, just because it's a good one. I really want to know that about Rob as well. All right, everybody. So thank you so much again. Just a quick mailbag episode. I'm gonna I'm gonna end it here. Don't worry, we'll be back. Rob and Danielle R and D will be back next weekend. So don't worry. Always stay tuned. You can always count on us. We've been we've been doing this for a year, despite uh, God like four full-time job changes and all kinds of schedule changes and coastal changes and so on and so forth. So so don't worry, friends. We're going to be here. Idle Weekend is here to stay. So this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. So... It really helps us if you have a moment to go ahead and rate us on iTunes. Give us a little give us a little rating there. That helps us so much. Also, if you tell your family, tell your friends, tell the people that you like, tell the people that you love about our podcast, anybody that you think might be interested. Guy who makes your coffee at the coffee shop, or the gal, you know, or the non-binary person, whoever it is. Whoever makes your coffee. Tell your coffee maker. Tell your barista. Whoever it is, it helps us out so, so much. It means the universe to us. Uh, to, uh, you know, spread our wings and fly and get to more people's earbuds. So thank you so much for doing so. And uh, if you have a moment, please do that. So for Rob Zachney, always my co-host Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends.